the privilege that's been gathered and given to us this afternoon to come together as we've already done and to have been able to pray, to sing, to encourage and edify one another, all of which has been a wonderful and fantastic opportunity. May we each, as we've already prayed in prayer, be strengthened and look forward and be better able this coming week to be blessed servants of the Most High God. And even tonight, as you may have noted from the title of the lesson, a shocking find, we will turn our attention to a rather fascinating scene of events as they occurred in the Old Testament era of King Josiah. And in the course of those events, be reminded of something ever so penetrating and ever so profound even in our day, some so many centuries later. You may have already wondered what is it that was found and what made it so shocking. I hope that the title alone is sufficiently invigorating and perhaps inquisitive to make us be a bit desirous of recalling some of those scenes in the Old Testament. As we do that, may I introduce the lesson in the following way. We each, perhaps at this point, have in our hand the greatest single physical gift that is to be made known to us. You may have in your hand at this point a copy of the Word of God, a copy of the Holy Bible. And that very copy that we so often look upon, that we so often consider, is indeed a blessing that, if we aren't careful, can easily slip past the mind. We see it on a bookshelf, perhaps ranked right beside several other copies of the Bible, when all the while, upon looking at those copies, we might at least be tempted to forget the significance of that volume, what it really does mean, the significance attached to it, the eternal scope that it contains. As we consider the lesson entitled, A Shocking Find, this evening, one of the opening statements, the very second one on that sheet on the screen to my left, reminds us of the fact that we still live in a land where the Bible is revered. If you poll a thousand people, likely well over 85% of them will openly tell you a degree of respect that they have for the Word of God, an understanding of something very unique and special about the character of it. But there's only one problem. Though the Bible is revered, it is hardly ever studied. Though the Bible is revered in terms of wording and paying homage to the nature of it, seldom indeed are the occasions when that 85% would openly confess that they frequently open its blessed pages and turn into that matter and find things to apply to their life. The Bible is revered, but seldom studied. That alone paints the picture of biblical ignorance. For in fact, one can all his life pay homage to the greatness of the book, but if its pages are never opened, if a study of it is never engaged in, it doesn't take any great length at all to understand that the person will really not be knowledgeable about what it says. He or she may have heard others talk about what it says. But in terms of grasping that knowledge, applying it to him or herself, that will never have taken place. Biblical knowledge is not only a serious matter, it's frighteningly extreme. That statistic I just listed will only be heightened as we look at some other statistics through the course of this lesson. As we consider then this shocking find, might I openly ask some questions? Is this particular age and time the first time that such an incident like that could ever have happened? That is, a nation or a people who would pay homage to the Scriptures, to the nature of the Word of God, but yet be basically ignorant of its contents. 
I'd submit to you the answer is no to that question. And we shall revisit this scene in the Old Testament to saw what happened on another occasion when the nature of the Word of God was so pertinent and pressing and see what lessons we may be able to learn from the events of that day. Challenges to remind ourselves. With that said, would you revisit with me some historical matters first? We shall find these a bit helpful as we come in a moment to some of the characters that will be so much a part of the lesson this evening. In the history of the Old Testament, we remember there was a time that for a period of 120 years, the children of Israel were blessed to serve beneath a single king, the united king of Israel. If I could pause just a moment. That's what I feared may have happened this morning. I see it waited until tonight, but I, I, there's no promise that I shall be able to bring this back up to continue in the lesson. I, I'm hopeful. Give me a minute to reboot that computer and we'll see if it'll be successful. But some of the comments that I was making would still be perhaps easily perceptible. In the Old Testament, from the time the children of Israel came forth from Egyptian bondage, they, of course, were blessed on a number of occasions with leadership such as Moses or Joshua or perhaps various of the judges. But there was a time when a king was chosen, and through a period of 120 years, the kingship was such that all of Israel dwelt beneath a single king. First it was Saul, and then it was David, and finally it was Solomon. However, following the reign of that man, namely Solomon, we appreciate that there was a very serious set of problems that ultimately led to the division of that kingdom. Ten of the tribes chose to remain loyal, in essence, to a different way. They chose a gentleman named Re uh, Jeroboam as their king. And inasmuch as they bound themselves together and were loyal in that way, might we notice that they became known as the northern kingdom of Israel. On the other hand, that left two tribes. They too remained loyal to the way of God. They became known as Judah, and that was the southern kingdom. As we recollect and consider the features about the nature of each one of those kingdoms, the northern kingdom proceeded through a series of kings and they were all wicked, every one of them. That kingdom proceeded rather quickly down a very tragic end that led to idolatry and ultimately God allowed them to be taken captive under the mighty hand of Assyria. But as we turn our attention to the southern kingdom, the scene was a little bit different. For there we remember that they too enjoyed many kings and most indeed of which were ungodly. But thankfully there were a few good, righteous kings. Those whom God was able to share forth a degree of favor and those who by and large tried to do that which was the bidding of God. As we make listing of some of those kings, only a certain few will be of our interest tonight. The twelfth of those kings was a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is recollected in the Old Testament as being a good king. He at least attempted to draw individuals to an understanding of God. However, after his reign, his son became the next king. Few indeed have been the times in the Old Testament when an individual was more different than his father. The son's name was Manasseh. 
And he was the most wicked of the kings that Israel or that Judah ever had. In fact, for 55 long years he reigned as king, but the entirety of his description is such that he was wicked and one who attempted, in fact, to discourage service to God. Amazingly enough, Manasseh had a son who, in fact, was just as bad as he. Amon was his son. He was, of course, the next of the kings, the 14th in line. Amon reigned only two years, and then he was slain. He was assassinated. When we come to the 15th king, let me try this again briefly. And that's the sheet that we were just in most recently. Perhaps with a bit of favor, we'll be able to continue with speaking about some of those features and facts. But notice again, as we consider those kings, we've reminded ourselves that though Hezekiah was noble and godly, the next two were not. Manasseh, followed by Amon, both were exceedingly wicked in their character. And in fact, so wicked were they, that they in fact encouraged a disservice to God and tried as best they could to encourage the people as a whole to turn their attention to idolatry. Idolatry. It's even said of Manasseh that he supported the sacrifice of live children, believe it or not. Those kinds of features tell us about the nature of what was the time when the young man named Josiah came to the throne. Josiah was the son of Ammon. And when Ammon was assassinated, at that day and time, it typically fell to the, one of the children of that king to, be, to become the next king. And that came to be in the reign here of, of Ammon. When he was assassinated, his son Josiah came to the throne. He was only eight years old at the time. Here was a king at the tender age of eight. However, we might notice that though he was young, he was nonetheless very great in many ways, for he at least made far better decisions in many ways that even were his father and grandfather. To speak more carefully about some of the things of Josiah, let's look at his reign just a little bit more carefully, because it will be in his reign that a shocking find took place. The reign of Josiah is recorded in 2 Kings chapters 23 and 22, as well as Second Chronicles, chapters 34 and 35. After coming to the kingship at the tender age of eight, we notice that a mere eight years later, when he was but 16, he began to make a diligent effort to pursue the ways of God. Isn't it significant that the influence of his father and grandfather had not overwhelmed him to the point that he could not see the right and the proper way? At age 16, in his pursuit of that which was of God, we see that not many years later, 
At this time, we notice he even went a step further. He began to purge idolatry out of the land. He destroyed the places where idolatrous activities took place. He destroyed the various idols and groves that had been constructed in the days of his father and grandfather. He made a very serious intent to turn the heart of the people to what he perceived to be a way of greater righteousness and a way of greater holiness. When we reach the age of 26 in this young king named Josiah, we see, however, something truly remarkable. When we remember that in the days of both Ammon and Manasseh, they had little interest in those events that took place in the temple. For after all, they were Baal worshippers and idolatrous kings. Thus, the temple had fallen into great disrepair during the days of their reign. Josiah came to appreciate that we, if we are to present God our best, we need to restructure. We need to repair the temple. It has fallen down. It has fallen into disrepair. Thus, he gave orders to Hilkiah, the high priest, and as the various funds were collected by virtue of the command God gave to Moses, the command was given to use a portion of those monies to restructure and to repair and to, in fact, fix up, if you will, the temple. Interestingly enough, when that project came underway, you'll notice that Hilkiah found something very interesting in that repair. We might remember the temple was a fairly extensive structure. In addition to there being a noticeable porch, if you will, or a vestibule, there was the inner sanctuary. There was beyond that the Holy of Holy region. But there were also various chambers along the sides of the temple itself. And in those chambers, there was places where the priests could dwell or maintain a degree of an office or some other local dwelling place. Interestingly enough, Hilkiah found something amazing. In that repair project... Hilkiah found a copy of the law, a copy of the law of Moses. The scriptures present that as something truly astounding. In the way that is read in 2 Kings 22, in the way it's presented in 2 Chronicles 33 and 34, it was a shocking thing that Hilkiah found. So much so that when he found it, he asked a scribe named Shaphan to read it, to be familiar with it. Shaphan proceeded to read it, and at once... Shaphan took it to the king, King Josiah, and read it in his hearing. At this very moment, might we notice that Josiah was overcome with concern once he heard it. Josiah, in his interest to do that which was pleasing and right before the eyes of heaven, when he heard what Shaphan read, he rent his clothes. And in 2 Kings 22, he immediately sought the advice of a prophetess whom he trusted would deliver the words of the Lord to him. For he immediately knew that we have not kept the words of this book. Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't that truly astounding? To consider that a step further. This lists some of the specific facts found in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Upon the advice of Huldah, that prophetess, Josiah had the entirety of that book read in the audience of the congregation. He called an assembly, had all the people brought together, and had that book read to them. And then he openly confessed these words. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verse number, or chapter 23, verse number 3, 
And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. The statement is made that what they heard read in that book they had not been faithful to keep. In fact, they had failed throughout the decades and centuries to faithfully do that which was to be found within it. At this point, consider these questions. Those who found that book, namely Hilkiah, was a high priest. Why was he so shocked to find that book? Was he not familiar with it? As a high priest, he should have thoroughly been acquainted with the contents of that law of Moses, for on a weekly basis he should have been preaching from it. Why was Josiah so shocked when he heard it? Why did he rent his clothes? Why was it that he sought the advice of a prophetess? Was he unfamiliar with the teachings of the law of Moses? Though this was the very people of God who had been given that hundreds of years earlier and ought to have been thoroughly acquainted with its contents. Why did Josiah have that read before the audience of the entirety of the children of Israel? Ought they not to have known that for centuries? We certainly have admitted that Manasseh and Amon were not godly kings. But was there not some influence in which it was to be recognized that this book was at least partially familiar to people? We again get the impression this was a shocking find. It's as though they found a treasure with which they were totally unfamiliar. What had happened? Why was it that this book was so unfamiliar to them? May I submit to you that the following statement may be a bit on the interesting side. It would seem that given that these were the people of God, and that they had been given the law of Moses, and that they were to have been those who studied from it on a regular basis, it seems safe to say that they knew about the law of Moses, but they did not know the law of Moses. They were unfamiliar with its contents. As the decades and as the centuries had passed, they had lost sight of a thorough working knowledge of the law of Moses, what it involved, what it demanded of them, how their worship was to be orchestrated and done. All of that seemed totally new to them. That alone raises some more interesting questions. For it would seem that these people of that day were in a state of Bible ignorance. For had they not been, this would have been no shocking find. Doesn't that perhaps lead us to think about the following statistics in our day? Could a situation like that happen in the United States today? A nation in which Bibles are so easily to be had and purchased and owned? A place where we are at freedom to read it all we like and to study it as often as we wish? A place in which there is no restriction whatsoever on the ownership or the study of the Word of God? Could there come a time when we could be described as an ignorant nation as it comes to the Word of God? Consider some statistics, if you would. The Bible continues to be, by far, the best-selling book. Year after year after year, it by far sells more copies in this land than any other. There's nothing else even close. In fact, to note more carefully, in the year 2006, some 25 million copies of the Bible were sold. And in fact, that number seems fairly consistent from one year to the next. 25 million copies of the Word of God, easily sold, purchased, and that doesn't include all those that are given away. But notice also that might we say that here in America, 
we in this land happily spend some $2.4 billion on Bibles and other religious materials in that same calendar year of 2006. That again emphasizes that we as a nation still revere the Bible. We still have a degree of respectfulness for its wonderful contents. But the matter only seems to worsen. According to the United Bible Society's organization, some 393.1 million scriptures were distributed again in the year 2006. The very bottom one, it's been estimated that by the close of the year 2007, there were some 4 billion Bibles in print in thousands of different languages and in hundreds of different editions all around the world. That's an amazing facet and a remarkable statistic, isn't it? You would think then the scriptures would be so thoroughly known, knowledge of the Bible would be so tremendously great, it would be exceedingly difficult, one would suppose, to in fact teach that which would be error concerning the Word of God, for so many should know it. But is that true? Well, let's look at some more statistics. Our discussion, again, had to do with a shocking find. But... In a recent poll taken of the people in our land, less than half of them could name the first book in the Bible. Can you imagine? Though all these Bibles have been sold, all these religious instructions and materials, less than half those polled could name the first book in the Bible. What's more, less than a third could name the person who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Less than a third, that is, over 66% were unable to list that Jesus the Savior was the preacher for the Sermon on the Mount. In addition, over half could not even name one of the Ten Commandments. Over half those polled were unable to list even one of the Ten Commandments. In the fourth place, lest we think that perhaps that's only descriptive of a certain subset of our population, there was another poll taken, and specifically only a certain group of people were asked this time. Those that were freshmen, the entering class at the Christian colleges and universities around our country. Notice these statistics. One-third of the students at those Christian colleges could not properly put in correct chronological sequence the following four entities. Abraham, the Old Testament prophets, Christ, and Pentecost. Notice again, a third of them could not properly put in order, chronologically, those based on the Bible. What's more, a full half of them, those same colleges and universities, could not properly sequence the following four. Moses, Isaac, Saul, and the exile of Judah. Ponder with me the significance of this. These are not minute details in the Bible. They are overwhelmingly great significant events based on great individuals like Moses or Christ or Abraham. And yet there was an insufficiency of knowledge such that one could not even tell so many in so many instances where, in a correct fashion, these things fail. In the next place, a full one-third of those polled did not know that Matthew was an apostle. They were unaware of that fact. Furthermore, a full 80% of those polled could not tell you which book in the Bible to find a record of Paul's missionary journeys. A full 8 out of 10 could not tell you what book to go to to read about those events. Finally, a full two-thirds, 67%, did not know where to go in the Bible to find the Sermon on the Mount. 
my friends, those are sad statistics. In fact, they're beyond sad. They're tragic. For a nation with the freedom of the Word of God, in which access is so prevalent, we buy Bibles by the hundreds, we sell them by the millions, they're owned by our land in so many instances, and yet, as I mentioned before, we revere the Bible. We just don't study it. Thus, individuals have the level of Bible ignorance that we have seen in light of these statistics that I've just shared with you. As I list those statistics for your consideration, I list them partly to remind ourselves. I feel sure that those within the confines of this building would do far better on that poll than these who have been asked. And for that, we each can be so thankful and grateful. But might I suggest that we live in a land that can fairly now be characterized as biblically ignorant. Though we still may by some be called a Christian nation, I'm not so sure that that descriptive is as accurate as it ought to be. For a Christian nation, you would think, would be knowledgeable of the Word of God, ought to be thoroughly acquainted with its marvelous and wonderful concepts, and be able to recognize error when it's taught and when it's heard. But in our land, that seems not to be the case. In all fairness, could not the following statements be naturally made? That just because the Bible is an abundant book, and just because it seems so prevalent, and various homes may own dozens of copies, that really doesn't mean anything about how much the owner of that Bible may know about its contents. For one has to open that book, and study that book, and invest some energy and some time in becoming acquainted with that book. It doesn't happen magically, does it? Sometimes at school, students I can hear make comments that as an exam approaches, oh, how they wish they could go to sleep and sleep on that book, and by osmosis, the information would transmit to their brain. I haven't yet found a student who's found a way to do that, and it doesn't happen with the Bible either. It takes effort and energy on our part, doesn't it? But notice the second statement. As we've made note this morning, or this afternoon, I should say, notice again what happened in the days of King Josiah. A high priest found a copy, in essence, of the Bible of that day and found it a shocking thing. That would be somewhat like a preacher in our day as a repair job on a church building took place to find a copy of the Bible and find it a shocking matter. That's somewhat like what had happened. If our nation doesn't invest in some more energy on an individual basis and strive to overcome this problem of biblical ignorance, the problem is only going to get worse. You see, biblical ignorance will not fix itself. It requires an invested effort, a dedication on the part of us as a nation. And it starts with you and me individually to become thorough students of the Word of God. I'm reminded of that scene in the 11th verse of Amos chapter 8. Amos on that occasion, by again speaking for the words of God, described a famine in the land. But he noted the following language. He said, there's a famine in the land, but it's not of bread and water. Aren't you and I accustomed to thinking about a famine as a shortage of food? But God through Amos said, the famine that's now present is not a famine of food and water. But in fact, it was a far worse famine than that. He said it's a famine of the knowledge of the Word of God. It may be you and I are on the brink of living in a time when a famine like that's before us. It's not that the Bible is unavailable. It's easily available. 
It's just that there seem to be so many who do not study it, who are far more content to listen to someone else talk about what they think is in it rather than to read it for themselves and to come to know the truth that God has stored within it. A study of the Bible. It has been estimated, and I take that the person who made that estimate, since I have a great confidence in his trustworthiness, he made a statement that if a person would only study for 15 minutes, he could thoroughly become acquainted with the entirety of the New Testament in two years. That's all it would take. And if we understand that the Old Testament is about four times as long, then that would mean that in a period of 10 years with just 15 minutes a day, we could become thoroughly acquainted with the entirety of the Word of God. That kind of thinking helps us appreciate the Scriptures are not so lengthy that they can't be mastered or understood, but it's a chore that each of us can make use of and use for our betterment. In that same poll that I made mention of earlier, when those same individuals were asked, well, why do you not study the Bible? You have a copy. What reasons are there for which you are not able or do not study? Eighty percent of them made the following statement. I'm too busy. I don't have time. Might I ask, too busy for what? We seem to find time in our nation for other things. Watching television, talking on the phone, going to the movies, going to recreational events like basketball or football or soccer games. We find time for that which is priority to us. It would seem to me a far better answer would be, not that I don't have time. It's just that it's not a priority to me. Other things I consider higher in priority when all the time God did say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. May we certainly hope that our nation will revisit an interesting scene and not be like they were in the days of Josiah, where it was a shocking matter finally to find a Bible. We have these Bibles. We have them in plenty. Our chore is, of course, to read them. Given what we've stated, it's then no wonder that Bible error is so often taught and people don't know the difference. They happily sit at the feet of perhaps an eloquent and partially learned person who preaches a lesson that sounds ever so good. There's only one problem. That is, they listen, they are not familiar enough with the Scriptures to know that what the man is teaching is straightforward falsehood. And that's a tragedy. May we again in our land work for, as we encourage ourselves to be better Bible students, may we appreciate that we can encourage that also in others. Maybe one last set of thoughts. As we conclude the lesson, may we state that Bible ignorance is serious. It's not a laughing matter. It's not a trivial matter. It's a matter that as it was in Josiah's day, at least he understood how serious it was. He rent his clothes and pleaded that things could be done to make it better. He had that book read before the audience of the entire people and charged them to obey it fully. Oh, if only something like that could be done in our day. May we encourage such activities in our lives. If we ask, what can we do personally? Might I submit, it would seem the scriptures indicate the following. First, we can love the Word of God. That is to say, we appreciate with thoroughness and grandness the true blessing that it really is. Is it any wonder the psalmist declared, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. 
the psalmist, you see, devoted more attention to it than merely a few moments. And later in that same chapter, in verse 140 of the 119th Psalm, the statement there, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. In the second place, may we respect that word of God. May we understand the respectfulness as Paul had for it. On that occasion, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, as Paul approached near the end of his life, he made request for one document to be brought to him, the parchments. Bring me the word of God. Oh, how comfort and great respectfulness Paul had for it. In the third place, may we seek to read that Bible frequently, employing in our life a degree of dedication to it, understanding that God doesn't wish us to read 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day. He understands that there are other responsibilities and duties in life, but that there should be some time set aside for improvement in ourselves as we give diligence to a reading of the Word of God. But might we quickly note that that reading alone is not sufficient. One could read the entirety of the Bible, but upon a failure to study, one would not have achieved an understanding and a mastery of what is contained therein. Is any wonder that those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily? And the word search means to examine. That is to say, they did more than just quickly and hurriedly read through it they gave a degree of interest and diligence to study. And then finally, as we do the same, may we apply that which we read to our own lives. The ultimate nature of its meaning will only be seen once we make application of that to ourselves. That, of course, is encouraged of us in Matthew 7. In the first five verses, of, uh, the last five verses of that chapter, we remember that very famous story in which Jesus talked about a wise man and a foolish man. And the point was that the foolish man heard but did not do that which he had heard. But on the other hand, the wise man not only heard but did that which he had heard. He applied to his life that which had been commanded. Jesus said his life is like a house then founded on a rock. When the winds came, the floods as well, that house stood firm because it was founded on a rock. If you and I are to be much like that, we too must apply the teachings of God's Word to us. This evening, as we've come to the conclusion of this lesson, it's certainly fair to say that we've been reminded of a shocking find in the Old Testament. A shocking find in which it was God's Word that was the shocking find. May we encourage ourselves to not allow that to happen in our lives or those whom we love and cherish, but to encourage in them a reading and a love for the Word of God so that its contents will be familiar and be well known in that thing which is obeyed. This very night, we understand that our Savior left the portals of heaven and in so doing, His mission was that all mankind might be saved. For we do read, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. We understand that the Lord has done His part he paid the way for salvation, but you and I must obey. We must respond in faith to the gracious offer of God's salvation. Have you responded to that this evening? Have you believed in Jesus as the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed His glorious name as the Son of God, and been buried in water, that is to say, baptized for the remission of sins? 
If you haven't done that, tonight would be the night. It would be a glorious night for you as your sins are washed away and you are added to the Lord's body, Acts 2.47. If that has been the case at some former time in your life, but you have lost track of the uniqueness of God's Word and no longer hold to it dearly and cherish it highly, perhaps you've done things in a public way that's brought reproach upon your Savior and upon the, His body. If that has been the case... There's a host of brothers and sisters anxious for your return to faithfulness. Happy indeed would they be to pray on your behalf for God to forgive those sins. If we might be of assistance to you tonight in either of those ways, certainly would you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing.